Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsell, and this is a special edition of the podcast to introduce you to a new project that you may have noticed has been going along in the background, the St. Emlyn's Medical School. This is the first podcast in a new series where we're looking at all of the medical licensing assessment topics, but I thought it might be worth sharing with a wider audience because you may find it useful too. Please do introduce your medical students and other healthcare students to this podcast and the website that accompanies it with comprehensive show notes and other revision aids. I hope you enjoy it and find it useful. St. Emlyn's Medical School podcast in association with the University of Southampton. I'm Ian Beardsell. In this episode, we're going to talk about shock, a condition which really worries us as doctors and clinicians, and one that we need to be able to think about, categorise and urgently treat if we're going to save patients' lives. Let's start with the case. You're a foundation doctor and you're just a few days into your first job You've been called to the ward by a concerned nurse who on checking a patient's observations has found them to be hypotensive with a blood pressure of 80 over 40 and the patient seems confused. The nurse is really worried and asks you to come to the ward straight away. So that's a pretty common scene, isn't it? And one that I'm sure you'll be confronted with pretty soon in your clinical career. And in the next few minutes, what we're gonna do is talk about how you can think about approaching that patient what the cause might be of their low blood pressure or shock, and how you might go about treating it. Let's start first with a definition of shock. Although we often think of shock as a low blood pressure, if we're going to be more accurate, it's actually about tissue and cellular hypoxia, that lack of oxygen getting to the cells. So it's not just about the patient's blood pressure, but it's also about how much oxygen they're carrying in their blood. Now, why does this matter? And I'm gonna transport you back to your high school chemistry and biology. You'll remember that we need oxygen for that respiration to occur in the mitochondria, where we convert glucose into ATP. Now, without oxygen, we can't go through that respiratory oxidative phosphorylation. And so instead, we just go through glycolysis and we only make a few ATP molecules for every molecule of glucose. But if we add in oxygen, all of a sudden, instead of just a few molecules of ATP, we get more like 36 or 38 per molecule of glucose. So oxygen is absolutely fundamental to our cells having energy and remaining alive. Without that production of ATP, our cells would simply die. And that's what we see when we have a lack of oxygen to any part of the body, whether that's to the heart as part of a heart attack or ischemic heart disease or acute coronary syndrome, or whether that's to the brain as part of a stroke. If there's not enough oxygen getting to the cells, then the cells die. As an emergency physician, I sometimes think of myself as a facilitator of ATP production because that's at the heart of what I do. I need to make sure that oxygen gets to cells. Now that we've thought about what shock actually is, how do we define that and where does it come from? Well, the shock is directly related to the delivery of oxygen to cells, and that's that you need your haemoglobin. But I want to concentrate on how the cardiovascular system gets that oxygen that's being carried by the haemoglobin to the cells themselves. This will require us to think a little bit about cardiovascular physiology. And the next equation, which for me is at the heart of all resuscitation. So mean arterial blood pressure is equal to the heart rate times the stroke volume times the total peripheral resistance. It's so important that I'm going to say that again. Blood pressure 
is equal to heart rate times stroke volume times the total peripheral resistance. So we need to optimize each of those three variables to maximize the oxygen delivery to cells. And when we see a patient with a low blood pressure, they're gonna have shock because they're not gonna get enough oxygen to the cells. And we can think about the causes of that low blood pressure and which of those three variables, or it could be more than one, heart rate, stroke volume, or total peripheral resistance are affected. And once we know which of those are affected, we can think more about the cause. And once we know that, we can think about how we're gonna treat it and reverse it. We could think of this in one of two ways. We could either think of what things might alter those three variables, or we can think about the causes of shock that we know and how it affects them. And I'm gonna go for the latter. When it comes to the syncope episode, we're gonna use the former. But in this case, let's think through the different types of shock that we've all heard of and how they affect either the heart rate, the stroke volume, or the total peripheral resistance. Let's start with a really obvious one, hypovolemic shock. So in this case, the patient has just not got enough blood going around. They're bleeding somewhere, and that means that there's not enough blood in their circulatory system. So which of the three things does that affect? Well, often the heart rate increases to try and compensate for this. That's why patients get a fast heart rate if they're losing blood. Then they're gonna increase their total peripheral resistance as well because there's all that adrenaline and noradrenaline going around their body as their body tries desperately hard to keep that perfusion going to get the oxygen to cells. The variable that's most affected in hypovolemic shock is the stroke volume. The heart isn't filling as much as it should, so the stroke volume falls straightforward. And what do we do if people have lost blood and their stroke volume is down? Well, we need to replace it. In some cases, that may be that we replace it with crystalloids like 0.9% saline or with Hartman solution. Often these days, we'll replace it with actual blood products, either whole blood, red blood cells, and plasma and platelets. So that's cause number one, hypovolemic shock caused by a decrease in the stroke volume. We're going to take two together now, which you could call distributive shock, but I'm gonna call anaphylaxis and septic shock. So these are very similar because the reason that they cause people to have a low blood pressure is a decrease in the total peripheral resistance. In the case of anaphylaxis, it's down to that histamine causing the release of all of those vascular mediators that cause that profound vasodilatation, that rash that can occur. That's the cause of shock in anaphylaxis, a drop in total peripheral resistance caused by all that histamine release. In sepsis, it's similar, but down to bacteria. The direct cause of bacteria on cells releasing those mediators again, causing a decrease in the total peripheral resistance once more. So if our total peripheral resistance falls, what do we try and do? Well, we try and increase our heart rate and our stroke volume to compensate. So in sepsis, we see the patient has a tachycardia and often their heart's going as hard as it can to compensate for the fact that now all of that afterload that the heart should be pumping against as the total peripheral resistance is lost. So what can we do here to try and correct these? Well, in anaphylaxis, our primary aim is to reverse the effects of the histamine. And it's not just affecting the vascular system, is it? It's actually affecting the lungs and other systems too. And the most effective way for us to reverse that decrease in total peripheral resistance is by giving adrenaline, which acts on alpha receptors in the vasculature to cause vasoconstriction, but also crucially, acts on the beta receptors to cause bronchodilatation. In septic shock, we're gonna try and give some fluid to the patient to fill up that vasculature, a bit like when you're trying to blow up a balloon. You want it so it's just tight enough. So actually the air would flow out of it if you left it off the end of the balloon. In the same way here, we want the blood vessels just tight enough so that the blood will flow through them. 
So we're going to give some fluid, and again, that might be crystalloid, like 0.9% normal saline and Hartmann's. If that's not working, we're going to consider if we need to use a medication that will squeeze the patient to increase their total peripheral resistance because they are unable to do it because of all those mediators that are flowing around. So once we've given the fluid, we might think about giving what we would call a presser or vasopressor like noradrenaline. Of course, with sepsis, we also need to give them antibiotics because that will prevent the ongoing release of those bacteria and the bacterial mediators that are causing this problem in the first place. We call it distributive because really all that's happening is the fluid is enough in the vascular system, but it's in the wrong place because of that increase in total peripheral resistance. So we've had hypovolemic shock, which is a decrease in stroke volume, and now we've had the distributive shocks or anaphylactic and septic shock, which is a decrease in total peripheral resistance. Next, let's think about cardiogenic shock, or shock that's down to causes from the heart. Now, more often than not, this is down to an ischemic episode affecting the ability of the heart to pump. There's not enough oxygen getting to those myocardial cells, and so they're dying, so the heart is no longer effective. What will happen then is that, again, the stroke volume will fall because the pumping effect of the heart is just not good enough. There are other ways in which we can go into shock from heart problems, such as complete heart block, and in that case, it's the heart rate that's falling. And we may be able to reverse that with medication or by taking over the pacing activity of the heart by using a pacemaker. Sometimes it's the opposite. The heart's going too fast. And so instead of being able to pump at a good rate with a decent stroke volume, the heart's going too fast and the stroke volume drops because of it, because there's not enough time for the heart to fill. So when we think about cardiogenic shock, there's multiple different causes. If the heart's going too slow, we need to speed it up. If the heart's going too fast, we need to slow it down. And the one that's hardest to manage if the heart's dying because it's not getting enough oxygen to the cells. And in that case, we need to do all we can to temporize that before somebody can come and increase that oxygen supply to that heart muscle. Often by going for a cardiac catheterization and for that vessel to be opened up using a balloon or perhaps even bypassed using coronary artery bypass grafting. So that's hypovolemic shock, a decrease in stroke volume, distributive shock or anaphylactic and septic shock, a decrease in total peripheral resistance. And we've got a few types of cardiogenic shock, but the most serious and concerning is the one where we've got myocardial ischemia and the ventricle is dying and no longer able to pump effectively. We can also see shock in patients who've had injuries to their spinal cord, neurogenic shock. Now this is different to spinal shock. Neurogenic shock is the disruption of that sympathetic chain that runs alongside the spinal cord and alterations to the vagal tone and the amount of stuff that is just keeping those vessels nice and taut. So in this case, neurogenic shock can cause a drop in the heart rate and also a drop in the total peripheral resistance. And in order to treat that, we may need to support the patient hoping that that will come back, i.e. by a better blood flow going to that part of the spinal cord area or by us then having to do other treatments which will make that reversible. Remember that spinal shock is something completely different where the word shock isn't used in the same context. Spinal shock is where you get disruption of the neurological function of that spinal cord, which can cause the paralysis that we see in spinal cord injury. Okay, hypovolemic, distributive anaphylactic and septic, cardiogenic and neurogenic. The final cause is one that we see in trauma and sometimes outside trauma too. And this is an obstructive shock. The idea that we've got enough blood going round, the heart's doing its best to pump, but it just can't pump effectively because there's something stopping it. Now that thing stopping it is often a mechanical obstruction. It could be a tension pneumothorax, so a rising pressure within the thorax cavity itself because there's air going where it shouldn't between the two layers of pleura, and that stops blood pumping out of the heart. 
It could be due to a cardiac tamponade, where there's blood in the sac around the heart, and that's meaning the heart can no longer pump effectively. Or it could be something like a large pulmonary embolus, which means that there's no longer ability to, for blood to pump from the right heart side to the left heart side, and so that could cause shock. And what do we do about those? Well, again, we need to reverse the mechanical obstruction because they're causing a problem with stroke volume, we're not able to pump enough, and the only way we can make that better is by mechanically altering what's going on. In the case of a tension pneumothorax, they may need a needle decompression or a thoracostomy, and that's just to let the air out of that cavity where it shouldn't be to relieve the tension, to relieve the obstruction. In the case of a cardiac tamponade, we may need to remove the blood from that pericardial sac around the heart. And for a PE, we may need to try and dissolve the clot using thrombolysis or perhaps even a mechanical thrombectomy to get rid of that clot. So we've been through the definition of shock, the idea that it's about decreased oxygenation of cells and therefore you can't make ATP. We've talked about the physiology of shock the heart rate times the stroke volume times the total peripheral resistance, making up your blood pressure, which drives the blood, carrying the oxygen to the cells. And we've thought of those different types and when we've considered the physiology of them, how we may treat them. Let's go back to our case. Back to the case. So you've been called to the ward and there's a patient who's post-operative who's got hypotension and therefore they're getting shocked. And as part of that, they're becoming confused because they're not getting oxygen to their brain. What do you do? Well, you go to the ward and you quickly assess the patient and you find out that they've got a fast heart rate and appear sweaty and clammy. And that's telling you that they've got that sympathetic drive to try and compensate for whatever the cause is that's making their blood pressure low. They've had surgery that day and you quickly make the diagnosis that they've had a post-operative bleed and you know that the way to treat that is by giving them some fluid back so that their stroke volume is restored. And you start an intravenous infusion of a crystalloid whilst calling the blood bank to request an urgent blood cross match for FFP and red blood cells. And at the same time, you call a senior colleague to come and immediately review the patient to think about if they need to return to theatre. Shock is at the basis of all we do in resuscitation. When we talk about the ABC of resuscitation, the B and C are pretty much all dedicated to the idea of getting oxygen from the lungs to the tissues. And what we've been through there is how we can use the physiology to think about the causes of shock, the different causes of shock, and what you might do to treat them. Thanks again for listening to the St. Emily's Medical School podcast in association with Southampton University. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do like and subscribe and tell your friends. We're hoping you're finding it useful towards developing your skills and being able to answer all those tricky questions you may get on the wards, in the medical licensing assessment, or even when you've qualified as doctors and you're faced with a poorly patient. Take care, everyone.